Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything About Tennis podcast. I am your host, Andy Gerst, and thank you once again for tuning in. We've got a fun and very important conversation, I think, for you guys today about tennis parenting with today's guest, Wade Murphy. Wade is a member of the Jack Kramer Club, the club where I've been teaching at for the last year and a half or so. Um, He's a very strong club player himself, and his son, Sean, came up through our junior program and is currently a junior at Pacific University just outside of Portland, Oregon. And I was at the club recently, and Wade and I were talking about what it's like about being a tennis parent, and he had so many good points about it that... We decided to just turn it into a podcast. Um, I think there's so much great info in here as Wade kind of shares his journey navigating through the junior tennis world with his son with no real prior experience of it and all the things that he learned along the way. Um, He made this big personal transformation as he started out wanting kind of so badly to help his son and teach him all the things that he wished he could have known as a junior player um, by kind of lecturing him, being really intense. Um, but he he ended up realizing that that attitude was doing a little bit more harm than good, a lot more harm than good, actually, to both his son's game, uh, but more importantly, to their parent-child relationship. And I think a lot of the things that he learned and that he shares in this podcast can apply not only to you tennis parents out there, but also to coaching in general um, and great information for you junior players out there as well. So I'm going to leave it right there, uh, but there's a lot of good stuff coming up. And thank you, Wade, very much for sharing all these personal stories. I think you guys all are going to really like this episode. But uh, before we get to the interview, um, I do have some news for everybody. Um, just recently, I have decided to accept a position uh, that was recently offered to me by the USTA. Um, I'm incredibly honored and humbled to have been offered the opportunity to be a national coach for our Team USA on the women's side, which is made up of our American women that are inside the top 300 in the world. Uh, Kathy Rinaldi, our U.S. Fed Cup captain and uh, former guest on the podcast, reached out and offered me the position that she has been in for the last few years. Um, she was recently promoted out of her uh, out of that role into her current role as the head of women's tennis for the USTA. Um, Kathy, Kathy reached out to me to fill her old position and uh, and I'm incredibly honored to to accept that job. Um, I will be starting that new position this coming Monday actually, uh, which I'm very excited about but Unfortunately, that also means I'm going to have to take a little bit of a break from the podcast um, just because I don't know what my uh, responsibilities are going to look like, how much time I'm going to have and and all that stuff. But um, this has been such an awesome experience getting to talk to all these great minds of the game and to have the ability to share it with all of you out there. Um, I've learned so much doing this and I hope you guys have learned a lot too. Um, And I truly, really, honestly um, appreciate the support out there so much. It means so much to me um, that you guys have all tuned in and listened. It's been amazing watching the listens and the downloads go up consistently week after week uh, and keep getting all the great feedback from you guys out there through the different mediums, um, both positive and constructive. Uh, I hope we all can continue to stay in touch, uh, reach out and keep tabs on me through my Instagram at AndyGurst10S. 
I still want to hear from all of you and hopefully answer any tennis questions that you guys may have going forward. Uh, this is such a wonderful sport. I feel so blessed to be a part of it for a living. And, uh, and thank you everyone out there uh, because you guys helped me make that possible. Uh, I also want to thank my awesome sponsors, uh, Adidas Tennis, Cadence Insoles, and most recently Selinko uh, for their support. When I started taking on sponsors for the podcast, I, I only wanted to support the, prog- the, the products that I truly believe in and use myself. Uh, and I'm really glad that that has remained true. Uh, Adidas Apparel has been great. Uh, and the foot, footwear is perfect. It's been one of my favorite brands for a long time. And it's perfect no matter what your priorities are with your shoes. Um, go with the Ubersonic 3s if you're trying to find a lightweight, speed-oriented performance shoe. I've been wearing those a lot recently. Or check out the Soul Boosts if you want some plush cushioning with excellent support and stability. Um, those are also an awesome option. The Cadence insoles have allowed me to get the most out of my footwear. I swear by these now. I'm recommending them to everybody. Uh, they provide just ideal support under the foot that keeps my body feeling happy. Um, but along with that, the plush cushioning system throughout uh, the insole uh, is there for the all-day comfort as well. So be sure to check those out. Lastly, Selinko Strings. I'm, sto- I'm so stoked to finally mention these guys. I've been a fan of these guys for years. Great people, great company. You guys see it everywhere. Um, I've been using their string for a long, long time. Uh, their famous bright green Hyper G and uh, their legendary Tour Bite. Both of those strings are awesome if you're looking for spin and control. Um, but if you want a little bit com- more comfort or power, you can try Tour Bite Soft or Tour Bite Rough. Those are great. Also, try a hybrid setup. Use a, use a thinner gauge in the cross string because normally we break our, our main strings. So you could go with like a 16L or a 16 gauge in your mains and then like an 18 gauge in your crosses and that can soften up the string bed. Um, or you can do what I do and combine it with natural gut and uh, and just get that perfect blend of, of all the different attributes. Uh, remember, when you're stringing your polyester strings, go low with the tension. Uh, try a full bed of it under 50 pounds if you haven't already. Do it for me, please. I know many of you out there Swear by your high tensions on your polyester strings. Uh, go low. Just do it for me once and see what you think. Um, but uh, but yeah, thank you to Adidas and Cadence and Selinko for all the support and all the great product. Uh, let's get to the episode with Wade Murphy on being a tennis parent. Uh, I also wanted to mention before I get to this, if you like this episode, I would highly suggest checking out the Payers and Players podcast. Uh, I actually got to be a guest on their podcast about a month ago and had a great experience. And they specialize in kind of junior tennis and te- and the tennis parenting topic. Um, so be sure if you like this, go search for payers and players and give that a listen as well. They have some awesome guests on there as well, some great coaches too. So, uh, but let's get to this episode, episode number thirty nine of the Everything About Tennis podcast. After a short intro from San Luis Obispo's own Highline. All right, we are live on the pod here with Wade Murphy, your member at the Jack Kramer Club, tennis parent. Uh, Wade, thanks for joining the pod today. 
Sure, sure. I'm excited. I'm glad to do it. Yeah, I was really excited. You know, we were, we had a great conversation at the at the club um, about the idea of being tennis parents, and I think it's a topic that doesn't get tackled a lot because um, or doesn't get tackled often enough because, like you mentioned, you know, there's no instruction manual on how to be a tennis parent, and yet. Uh, I can imagine, you know, I'm not a parent myself, but I've been, encountered a lot of tenants' parents as a coach, and uh, it, it's not an easy job. So I'm glad we can talk about it, and uh, and I know you've got a lot of great points on it. But let's start out maybe a little bit, just share a little about your tennis background, maybe how you started with the game and um, and your kind of competitive background with it. Sure, and I think that that's a big part of how I think I started out as a tennis crazy parent, uh, which is kind of an icky topic. Uh, you know, when you talk about the tennis parent, sometimes that flows over into other sports uh, where people say, oh, you know, he's kind of like a tennis parent, you know, but, you know, his kids play <laughs> baseball or something like that. And so um, I started tennis late. Uh, you know, I, I started in my teens and I played JV tennis in high school. I wasn't even good enough to play college tennis at all. Um, I grew up out in the, out in the sticks, um, in the inland empire. And so tennis was not a big deal at our high school. Uh, you know, it's all football and baseball. And so my parents were diverse, divorced when I was very young. And so I didn't have a dad in the house growing up. And so I'd see all these other kids and they were flourishing in their sports. And for some reason, I thought it was because their dads were helping them uh, with the practice and all that stuff. I, all these years later now, I realized that most of those kids were probably rejecting their dad's help and advice. Uh, but that's kind of set the seed for me as far as, hey, when I have kids, I'm going to do everything I can to make them as successful as possible. So then later in life, I got back into tennis and I started playing a lot of uh, senior tournaments and local tournaments. They had these, these great little local doubles tour around the South Bay and I got really involved with that and I started winning. And so then I transitioned over to the USTA and um, I, uh, I went down to play the national father-son hard courts with my son, Sean, when he was nine. Uh, our tennis coach or Sean's tennis coach at the time, the great Bill Dunkel told us, Hey, you guys should go down and, and play. It's a really fun event. And I watched those, the, it's at the same time as the 40 and over singles. And I watched those guys and I said, I'm going to practice and I'm going to come back and play this tournament. And so I ended up getting really active in that and, um, ended up being in the top 50 nationally in the forties and the 45s. And so I did pretty well. Um, and I had a reputation around the Kramer club of being one of the better players. And I know with Sean, when Sean was growing up and being at the club, they're like, Oh, you're so lucky. You've got this great dad. They can help you with your tennis. And, uh, I'm sure at that time he was like, uh, no, it's not good because <laughs> uh, he's all over me. And so that kind of fueled my ego as far as wanting to show everybody, Hey, I'm such a good tennis player. I have created yet another good tennis player here <laughs> in Sean and um, wanting to fix all the mistakes uh, that I felt like, and, and they, I don't want to call them mistakes, but 
you know, when I was growing up, my mom wasn't taking me to tennis tournaments and my dad had never seen me hit a tennis ball. So, uh, you know, I kind of set out to change all of that. And, uh, Sean, unfortunately, early in our relationship kind of bared the brunt of that. Yeah. And I want to go a step backwards and just for you personally, um, you know, you, like you said, you were just a kind of a JV player growing up and then you really took to the game later and have developed into an excellent player in your own game. What were kind of those steps that you took or those jumps that you made as an adult, um, when you really saw your game go into a next level? Well, a couple of things when I started competing, I'm very competitive and, uh, I really just attacked it. I went to several different coaches. Um, I got really lucky. I was hitting at the Kramer club. We kind of have this reputation that the adults hit with the juniors and give them better practice, especially the better, better juniors, which is awesome. Yeah, it is a great part of the Kramer club. And so I started hitting with this junior, um, whose mom was a very successful, you know, world number one, uh, player. And, uh, I would hit with this kid every week, twice a week. And she started giving me, uh, advice and she'd say, what are you doing with your backhand? And you're doing this or you're doing that. (laughs) And so, uh, I would take what she was telling me to my own coach. And say, hey, you know, I'm I'm not bending my knees or I'm not hitting the ball out in front, you know, because she's trying to get me better so that I'm providing a better workout for her son. And uh, I also kind of made the mistake of telling her my goal of getting a national ranking and and then <laughs> you know wanting to get in the top fifty. And so she would just grill me, "What are you doing? Why are you losing your point? You know, where are you losing <laughs> your points? Where are you winning points?" And and I think just her competitiveness and desire kind of pushed into me. And, uh, and that's when I really started making moves because I think it was, I was holding, somebody else was holding me accountable and I started holding myself accountable for my own results. Yeah. That's awesome. That, uh, like you said, you're pretty, got, got pretty lucky there, uh, yeah. that you got to learn from such a, such a great mind of the game too. So what was your practice regimen once you started to take the game a little bit more seriously? I know you said you started taking some lessons, you know, how many, how often were you able to get out on court every week? How often of that was lessons? How often was it practice matches? I would play, uh, five or six times a week. Oh, wow. Uh, I would have a standing lesson every, uh, Friday morning. Um, and I think one of the best things I did was I would go and set up practice matches and I would just practice what my coach was telling me to do. So if we were working on slice backhands, I would go play a practice match and maybe even lose to a guy I had no business losing to, but I'd slice every backhand or I'd serve every ball out wide on the deuce court. And, um, you know, after a while, the guy would just be parked over knowing that this was what was going to happen. But um, I really tried to put into practice what I was learning in my lessons. And a lot of times you get a lesson and the guy says, okay, here, we're going to practice kick serves. But then you get into a, a match, even if it's social match and the kick serves not working, well, you just abandon it right? and say, look, I'm, I just want to win this you know, it's Tuesday at five o'clock, but it's still the most important match to me in the world. And so I was able to push past that 
And um, I think it's also working with the right people as far as practice partners and saying, hey, look, you work on whatever you want to work on. Let's take our egos out of this and let's play a practice match. And and that's advice I give the juniors at the club all the time. Yeah. You got to find this person that isn't going to go around saying, oh, you know, I beat Jimmy yesterday. Um, and, you know, it's because, well, Jimmy was working on attacking and you, you passed him 80 times. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's a powerful lesson right there for any level of player trying to develop their game, I think, is A, your commitment to whatever you were working on. And the only way you get better at doing that is just by doing it, you know. And so your commitment to do that uh, relentlessly shows. And then also, like you said, kind of like being able to take the ego out of it, being willing to make mistakes and also having that longer term vision, like you said, oh, maybe my kickster is not working today, but you know what? I need to keep hitting it because in terms of my long term development, that's really important for me to get that shot. So, I mean, I think I think that's a huge lesson for players of, of any level trying to develop their game. So many players will only try and play matches against people who are better than them. And this happens in the juniors all the time. The parents are like, oh, I don't. I don't want Susie to play Sally because, you know, Sally's not that good. And so they'll play up divisions, right. you know, they're 12 and they're playing in the 14s. Well, there's no pressure in that. Yep. Because uh, you're you're not supposed to win if you're playing the best kid at the club all the time. And so then they go into a tournament and it's Saturday morning and they're playing somebody they're supposed to beat and they're not used to playing with that pressure. Yep. Oh. And now this kid is maybe a pusher, doesn't hit the ball as pure as the people they've been working on. And so they have no practice hitting a ball with no pace that's landing at the service line. And they've got to try to put that into corners and they end up overhitting and getting frustrated. And so here they've practiced with all these amazing players, but then they lose to somebody they had no bother or no reason to lose to. Yeah, oh, I couldn't agree. Uh, I, I agree a thousand percent. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I mean, and, and I think it's natural too. You know, you want to play people that are that are maybe a little better than you because it raises your game, and you think, oh well, you know, if my game rises, that just shows that my game can continue to develop. But you got to learn to win. You got to learn to beat those players that don't give you that perfect ball. You got to learn to beat those players. Like you said, there's no pressure in playing up. And so learning how to deal with that pressure is really, really important. And uh, yeah, that's, that's huge. I'm glad you said that because I, could, I couldn't agree more. Uh, how, did, how did you introduce uh, Sean to the game? When did he start playing and what was the introduction to the game like? Well, we started, we joined the Kramer Club. Uh, you know, ground zero for junior tennis, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the best coaches. And it started out really great. Um, I would be playing and my son was three or four years old. And, um, of course he wanted to get out on the tennis court because he saw dad out there or mom and dad playing. And we would just play hockey, uh, just whatever he (laughs) wanted to do on the tennis court. Uh, just wanted to associate the tennis court with fun and, you know, Uh, Dennis Rizza, uh, a Hall of Fame director of tennis at the Kramer Club for a long time, he'd say to me, hey, tell Sean, hey, do you want to go to the Kramer Club and have fun? And uh, and so that's – I really adopted that, and I'd have him come over to the club, and we we would just hit with rackets and play hockey, like I said, and then maybe hit a few over the net. And then as soon as he would – 
get bored and want to go do play in the playground or something like that, we would just abandon it and, and go over to do something else. Yeah. And when did he start to take it a little bit more competitively, a little more seriously? Well, I guess around eight or nine is when he really started to play more, but not really seriously. It wasn't until high school that he, I really felt like he fell in love with tennis, that the team mm -hmm. tennis atmosphere was what he was really looking for. Um, so we would put him in tournaments at nine or 10 years old, but around eight is when he'd take more lessons and play in the workouts at the club and um, be on the, the different courts for the different strategies or different things like that. And so yeah. that's when I started taking it seriously. Yeah. So then, so then when he reached that point, what, what was that kind of shift for you? How did you feel like um, in your mind at that point, how were you helping him? I wasn't. I think I, yeah. I think I got in the way at that point because immediately as you enter into a summer camp program or an academy program, you know, I think as parents, we make this huge mistake of looking over the top of all of these average players and looking at the one kid, the, the McGillicuddy kid who is just wise beyond his years. He's beating everybody. He's getting to the semifinals or finals of every tournament. He can control him, himself on the tennis court. And you just think, okay, well, my kid's going to be like that. And you just ignore, you know, the other hundred kids that are playing in the summer camp and you just point to that. And so, you know, that first summer or the first academy experience, you know, Sean's not on the top court. Well, wait a minute. My kid deserves to be on the top court. You know, he all he needs is a chance. <laughs> and so my yeah. ego got involved at that point and um, it became apparent to Sean that his tennis was more important to me than just having some fun. Yeah. What kind of things were you doing? Uh, well, definitely, uh, lecturing him, um, any chance I could get. And this kind of goes back to me not having a dad in the house growing up. I thought that's what dads did. Right. Uh, so any chance I got to give him instruction. And I specifically remember telling him, Hey, you know, this is a battle. When you go out on the tennis court, you know, it's a, it's a war. It's, it's a battle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's eight. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I just, I remember looking at these other parents who, you know, didn't play tennis. You know, the dad was an engineer, you know, the mom was a doctor and, you know, they had no tennis, no athletic experience and their kid would, be on the court and just be playing disastrously. Uh, and then they'd be like, great job, Jimmy, let's go get pizza. And, you know, <laughs> with me, after Sean would get off the court, I'm, you know, breaking down his hip rotation. You've got to get your hips out of the way and get the, your ball contact out in front. And so <laughs> I was just pushed and pushed and pushed. Did, did you feel that, um, that kind of push back from him or how was he responding? Oh yeah. He, he fought it all the way. Um, yeah. you know, our relationship was rough at that point. Either he would shut down after matches because I'm lecturing him, you know, it was a 20 minute ride home from the club to our house and I would fill that 20 minutes. And, uh, I wish I could say that, you know, I was 
lecturing him with the tact and love of a child psychologist. Uh, but I wasn't, you know, I was really mad at, you know, some of the things that he would do. And, um, you know, if you're not on the top court, uh, sometimes even the kid knows, Oh, you know, here I am playing with these kids. I'm not playing with Timmy and Tommy and all the good kids. So I'm here with these maybe younger kids. And then they would just mail it in because they're like, why am I even here? And so then to the pros, it looks like, Hey, they're exactly where they belong, you know, cause it's not like he's beating these kids. And so, you know, I'm like, you get on that second court, you know, you got to make those kids cry, you know, then they, they have no choice to, to move you up, you know? So, you know, it's embarrassing to think about now and, uh, I'm just lucky that we made it through it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all this. I mean, what was the turning point for you? How did, how did that, um, how did that attitude start to change for you and when did that happen? Well, um, I've got a good friend, uh, Barry Buss, amazing tennis player, and he's an author. And he was writing a book called uh, First in the Field of Two. And he would give me advanced copies. And it was basically his view of growing up as a top junior with a dad that was a lot like me. Mm-hmm. I found myself aligning with the dad, <laughs> uh, you know, going, hey, you know what? You got to cut your dad some slack. And, uh, and so then Barry wrote an article, uh, that kind of compared the, the dads of two pro players or the families of two pro players. Um, one was very supportive, didn't go to a lot of the events, but just was there to, to catch the player if, if there was a problem. And the other one was more like your typical tennis dad at every match, shouting matches, uh, you know, after the, the event was over and that type of thing. And that kind of woke me up to, Hey, everywhere these players go, they're being judged and analyzed mm-hmm. and the coaches are asking them how they're doing. And so we and their peers yeah. their peers are judging them too yeah and so yeah. i had this paradigm shift that i need to be in a supportive role as as best as i could yeah yeah when when you say you were you found yourself relating to um to Barry's father, what what sort of feelings were you um, were you feeling? Where you go, hey, I I get well, that, you know. I think the worst type of tennis parent or sport parent is a parent that doesn't care. Says, I don't I don't care if you're playing tennis or baseball, you know. Go here, I'll drop you off at the parking lot, and then I'm going to go do my thing, and uh, I'm not going to ask you about your game or you know support you in any way. Uh, that is not a good sports parent. Um, This man uh, moved his family from back east to Southern California to help support his kids' obvious ability. Um, And so I'm like, you know, this man loves you to death. He's he's doing everything he can to get the most out of your... uh, abilities, but there's no manual. There's, there's no instruction of how to go about it. So the, the guy was just trying to do his best and get the best out of his kid. And so I was trying to do the same thing. My heart was in the right place. I want to make my kid as successful as possible. Every 
every parent does. Uh, we just have sometimes screwed up ways to have that happen. Yes. And, and yeah, like you said, you're doing everything in your power, but then that kid feels all that pressure, you know, the expectation and the pressure to succeed. And, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, I've talked to a number of kids where, you know, maybe the sacrifice wasn't even that big where they're not moving across the country, but parent, but kids feel, Hey, well, you know, my parents are taking me, you know, I was up in San Luis Obispo teaching tennis and it's, Hey, my parents are taking the weekend to, you know, to take me down and stay in a hotel. And so there's that burden that they feel like, Hey, I have to succeed. I have to win. And there's that, there's that pressure. And I'm, that that's, that's a delicate balance, I think, because on the one hand, you do want the child to appreciate the opportunities that they have and you don't want them to go down. And I think, you know, probably the most, the most frustrating thing as a parent is to invest so much of yourself and then see your child not care or see, you know, see your child, uh, you know, kind of, kind of fold under, under that pressure and not, not give it their best effort. Um, but at the same time, that pressure can be, can be heavy and, and the child can reject it. Did you kind of feel that, that balance as well? Oh yeah. And I have specific memories of you know, saying, you know how much this is costing? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of the worst type of thing. At the same time, we see pros just mail it in. Yeah. Uh, you know, they come out flat. And so these are people that obviously have some success and they've got all these coaches and physios and this great team around them. And they just are flat. We, we saw that with, uh, you know, that one top player uh, on the women's side where the commentators are like, well, she's just out of it. You know, she was number one in the world. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. So the game is, the game is horribly hard and there's just so much losing. And that's the thing that I, I think that kids and parents, we all just watch Federer and Nadal. I mean, well, this is how it's supposed to be. Focus but on it, that one top player as opposed to the other hundred, right? <laughs> exactly. And if you look at some of the pros' records, you know, there's there's people that are really famous that don't have winning records. Yeah, I remember seeing a stat. Um, I think it was like both Francis TFO and Steve Johnson who were having successful career or successful years. I think both of them were having the best year of the. It might have been last year or two years ago. It was like the best year of their career. Uh, ranking wise, and yet, like you like you said, they're under five hundred with their with their record, and so a lot of that has to do. I mean, there's like you said, a lot of losing. Half of those guys go home on the first day of the tournament, and they're all doing all the right things um, prior, you know, in preparation for it. And I mean, it's it's amazing handling losses and and handling, you know, failure in tennis is so huge, and knowing how to knowing how to constructively deal with it. That's really if a if a child has that at a young age, that's a really special quality. I would say that's probably pretty rare, right? And look what's happening right now on the pro tour is they're testing and considering on court coaching, right? So here's these people who have all of this ability and support and all of these things, uh, but then in between the first and second set, they can get a visit from their coach. But right. a nine-year-old from Toluca Lake is on their own. <laughs> right. That's amazing. That's very true. The other really crazy thing about 
junior tennis because tennis is one of the hardest junior sports. In soccer, for example, AYSO soccer, uh, they take all the phenomenal kids and they spread them out. It, you know, if they rank them from one to nine, I think, or something like that. And so if you're a nine level player, uh, each team will get a nine. And then each team gets a couple of eights and sevens. And then they fill up the rest of the team with the rest of us. So even if you're a, a two player, you can uh, be on a successful team because the phenom is scoring the goals and the eights and sevens are doing great passes and creating the success. And so you feel good about yourself. In tennis, if you're one of the lower ranked players, you're going to play that phenom in the first round right? and then have the rest of the weekend to think about it. Yeah, that's a very good point too. That's a very good point too. I want to go back to something you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier and I love, cause we talked about it at the club and I love how you were putting it. Um, you, you mentioned the types of tennis parents there are. And I think this is a, this is a, a cool topic because I think parents can relate to it. I also think that kids listening to this can relate to it and say, oh, my parents, this, this type of uh, tennis parent. So in your mind, what are some of the different types of tennis parents out there? Yeah, I think that sometimes the kids are better prepared to handle the, the parent-kid relationship, especially if, if the parent is open and honest. I, I remember one time I had this conversation with Sean and I said, hey, I'm tennis crazy. Uh, you know, I just, I just love it. So, you know, if you are playing a match and, and you look over at me and I'm flopping around like a fish out of water, you just have to go, oh yeah, that's my dad. You know, he's just crazy. <laughs> but you know, there's, yeah. there's the statistician, you know, every time you're playing a, a match and you know, yeah. you miss a first serve and you look up and your dad's looking down on his phone and pressing the button, you know, saying, <laughs> okay, there's a, and you're like, okay, well, he's going to break down that uh, statistic for me on the drive home. Uh, you know, um, and a lot of times I see those parents that that do that, and it's a coping mechanism to help them deal with that stress of the match, right? It almost helps them take their mind off of the match and gives them something to do, right? Right, right. Uh, I had one parent tell me, I, I read the paper. I get a paper, yeah. and so the minute I'm watching um, – uh, you know, him play a match and he misses a shot and he looks up, I'm like pretend, pretending that I'm reading the sports section and that I didn't <laughs> see that. Uh, and so That's I am good. so glad that that technology wasn't around when my kid was a junior because I would have had that app and I would have been like, you know, before you, you know, play with crayons, let's break down your, your <laughs> serve return percentage. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a social butterfly, yep. uh, you know, the parent that is there and is brought you to the match, but she's really there. Or he's really there to chat with all his buddies. And so you're playing this great match and you hit this huge winner down the line and you look and your dad is, you know, talking to his buddy, you know, and they're having this <laughs> great conversation and you're like, you didn't see that. I just hit this great shot. But then the next, the next point, you make this horrible unforced error and, and he happens to be watching at that point, right? And looking at you right. and you're like, yeah, well, uh. <laughs> um, so, and then obviously there's the grump, you know, there's that, there's this thing, a uh, uh, resting bitch face yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that people have. And so sometimes 
we don't even realize we're doing it, but we're sitting there, you know, with this mean or mad or upset look on our face. Um, uh, and then obviously there's the, the judge, uh, you know, who had maybe hands on their hips and, and watching and, you know, uh, kind of shaking their head as you miss, or, you know, they kind of point to the court, like, you know, that the serve was out, <laughs> you know, you played it, yep. you know, yeah. um, uh, one of my favorites is the Panther. Uh, yeah. You know, just pacing back and forth watching, <laughs> you know, like a Panther in a cage, uh, you know, just wanting to pounce at some point. Um, and so that's one of my favorites. So, you know, if you, if you know this about you, um, and you have this discussion with your kid and say, Hey, look, you know, uh, I'm watching a scary movie here. Uh, and, and so my coping mechanism is I'm going to be talking to my friends, the other parents or something like that. And believe me, I'm watching and I'm loving every second of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I I tell this story all the time about when we're watching, like a couple of years ago, Federer and the doll were in the finals of the Aussie open. It was at one o'clock in the morning. Everybody I knew stayed up to watch this match. Federer hadn't won in a long time. And a doll was coming back off an an injury. And we're living and dying by every point. It's in the middle of the night. And we're going, oh, you know, and my son was away at college. And he's texting me, did you see that point? And, you know, we are a Federer household. So we wanted him to win so bad. And so (laughs) every point you're flinching and going, ah, and going crazy. Well, do we know Federer personally? Is he our flesh and blood? Is he our kid? Did, have we been watching him play out serves for the last 40 minutes? No. And so as parents, the kids and, and the world needs to cut us some slack. We're watching this and we're supposed to just sit there stoically and go, oh, that was really something that he could have, he could have broke right there and, you know, got a set off of, uh, you know, a, an 11 UTR and that would have helped his UTR and, and stuff. But I'm just going to sit here as if who cares. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can feel it as a coach, how much I get wrapped up into the matches and, and, and a parent, I'm sure the, you know, 10 times more than that. I'm also really glad that the UTR system wasn't in place when my kid was a junior. <laughs> Even more pressure. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, everybody's around, you know, talking about their UTR. We had this great UTR tournament at the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was really a wonderful event. Um, but they gave out shirts with your UTR on the shirt. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, I'm walking around with a, a an eight you know, and, you know, some guys walking past me with a 12 shirt on. He's goes, he looks at me like, you, you know, oh, wow. and I, I didn't had, realize they did that with the shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeff Tarango gave me a 14 UTR shirt. Uh, just there for you fun. Go. I'm like, Hey, can I get one of those 14? Um, uh, and, but I have had, uh, friends, you know, who have young kids and the kids were in tears because, they didn't get the UTR that they thought they were going to get, or, you know, they lost to a, a, a kid with a lower UTR and it was going to lower their UTR. And uh, yeah. none of it really matters when you're 10, 12, yeah. 13, 14. Um, you know, my son uh, bloomed late. 
And so that could have been another reason for him to give up tennis. Yep, absolutely. When you step back and kind of took on that more supplemental, like supportive role, is that when he really started to, to take to the game? I think so. Um, and it wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect all the time. Uh, but, but that, um, and high school tennis, um, you know, he was on a team with great kids and, you know, the juniors and seniors, they really took him under the wing, his wing, their wings, and you get nicknames and let's go, you know, and, and all of that. And so he really liked that. Um, and then I did my best to be like ignorant about the game. You know, he's missing serves, uh, and he's like, Oh, I served like crap today. And I'm like, I, I thought you served great. You know, I never worry about your serves. Your motion is perfect. You know, so I'd always just try to give positive feedback. That was the main, uh, thing I tried to do is not critique at all. Just give him positive things to think about. And was that hard for you coming from the place that you were in before? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember, you know, watching him play and we were talking about overheads because he's an attacking player. And so he'd get lobbed a lot. And, uh, I'm like, Hey, you know, make sure you take a lot of overheads in practice. And so they're warming up for this match and he takes one overhead, you know, hits some volleys, takes one overhead and says, okay, let's, let's start serving. And then the kid lobbed him 80 times during the match and, you know, he missed 79 of them or some crazy thing. <laughs> and inside I'm like, I told you so, you know, Hey, wh what yeah. about this? I told you, you got to shore up the overheads. Um, but I was able just to not even say anything about it and be like, Hey, great match. You know, that's a, that kid was tough. Yeah. And just kind of move past it. Yeah. Did he, was he aware of the overhead issue you think, or was it best to just kind of stay, steer clear of it? Yeah. I don't think he was, you know, yeah. he's just out there playing, right. you know, it's just, and, and probably playing for me and, and his mom, you know, because we entered him in the tournaments, you know, these kids don't sign up on their own. Right. Uh, you know, we're the ones that have to put the credit card in and, and do all of that. So he wasn't asking us you know, Hey, instead of skateboarding with my buddies, I want to go down to Hermosa beach and play a tennis match. I think he could recognize cause he's a smart kid. He could recognize the change that we were trying to step back. And, and I did have, when he was older, I did have conversations with him and I said, Hey, look, your, your dad's tennis crazy. <laughs> um, I'm over competitive. And so since I can't control myself, it's going to be up to you. You know, to ignore me. No, I think that I think that honesty is really important. I mean, I think, like you said, it it helps kids. It helps kids start to get a handle on that and understand where you're coming from. You know, I think it helps the parent maybe admit what they, you know, what they are feeling, and um, you know, allows you to get it out and then kind of start to work through it and stuff. So I think that honesty is really important, and then hopefully you know, by the parent showing that honesty with the child and the child can then be honest with the parent and maybe share how, you know, certain things that they do, how it makes them feel, you know, and then there can maybe, you know, work to be a compromise there. And, um, I, I, I think that's a really healthy thing. And, and speaking of healthy things, I was excited to talk to you 
um, you know, Sean is now, you know, kind of flourishing in his college tennis environment. And I know he ended up at a division, division three school up in Portland, a great program. Um, how was that process of getting recruited and how did he end up there? And, um, and what do you feel like has helped him kind of start to take his game to the next level? So many good things. Um, first of all, the recruiting process, uh, was just amazing. You can imagine for me not getting close to college tennis and going through this recruiting process and having colleges be interested in his game. It was just Christmas day every day. Uh, <laughs> and I have a sales and marketing background. So, um, you know, putting together the videos and the letters and the packets to, to send to these coaches that were interested in Sean. Um, I, I would, tell Sean and I told my buddies that, you know, we're looking at college tennis programs like I dated in high school. Oh, you like me? I like you. Um, you know, and you'd be like looking down going, Oh, you know, yeah, we've been eyeballing. Let's look at the name uh, Sonoma state. We've loved Sonoma state for our entire lives. That would be huge for us to play there, yeah. you know? So, uh, we would go up and visit with these schools, the tennisrecruiting.net would list kind of the schools that were kind of looking at his background and watching his videos and stuff like that. And so we would go up and meet the coaches and, you know, Sean would meet the coaches and, um, that was just a super fun process. And then when we went to visit Pacific university, um, which is near Beaverton, Oregon, the coach there was like, Hey, you've got the game that can win tennis matches indoors. We look for attacking players, you know, being a grinder pusher type of thing when there's no wind, there's no sun, you know, that the advantages are taken away. We need guys that can attack the net and um, doubles is much more important in division three. Um, if you're a good doubles player, you can have a home in division three because it, the matches are first to five when well, they play three doubles matches first. So if a team can sweep the doubles, they're up three zero. They just have to win two of the six remaining singles matches. Um, so that's when Sean really caught fire because he's like, okay, I have a home here. And he started practicing with more intent, uh, lifting weights, just, just a man on fire. And it kind of turned out that all of those things that I was telling him and probably using the wrong methods, he still got the story. He still understood that, you know, if there's ingredients to bake a cake, you can't drop one of those things. You have to have desire. You have to have a little bit of talent and you have to have work ethic or it's not going to work. Um, I remember telling a, a top junior, um, you know, guys like us count on guys like you not working hard <laughs> because if you work hard, we can't catch you. Right. But we're, we're, what we're doing is working for that opportunity that that one day, you know, you come out flat or you didn't put the work in and we're going to get you. Yeah. And, uh, and so, that was a, a huge thing. Um, and so college tennis has been amazing and, uh, I'm still nervous when I watch him play, but not nearly, uh, as nervous. I don't have the anxiety because I'm just enjoying every second of it. That's great. Um, and he's having success. Um, 
he was the last player picked in the conference. Um, and you know, he's been conference player of the week. Um, and, and you know, second team all conference. And, and so I just feel like, Hey, you're having the best time. He's getting good grades. And so all of that anxiety, all of that stuff has dropped off. It's been amazing. That's neat. And I think too, that not enough attention is paid to, um, you know, the non-division one tennis and non-division one schools. I mean, I have one, one of my best friends, um, who I ended up traveling and, uh, on the pro tour with for a little while, had an amazing experience in division three tennis. And I think, you know, what I try to emphasize to the kids that I work with is, you know, there's, there's a, there's a place out there for, for everyone to play college tennis who, if, if they want to, for the most part, you know, it's like the, you don't have, don't, don't lock into D one and think, well, if I haven't made D one, then I'm a failure. I mean, there's tons of great programs. There's tons of great coaches and the experience, you know, what my buddy would always say is, Hey man, you know, I went to division three, I won a national title in division three and, that experience of winning a national title in Division Three was no less than it would have been had I been at USC winning a Division One title. He goes, that experience meant the same to me that it would that you know he would imagine it meant to them. I mean, it's the same rewarding feeling. You're you've got that team bond. Um, I mean, it, it as long as there's those those team goals to work towards. Um, and there's some incredible coaches and programs out there too. And I think you know Sean's a perfect example of someone that. He found a great fit for him and it's allowed him to get the most out of his tennis game, not just in his level, but just in like you're mentioning how much he's enjoying it now. And, you know, you're saying how you enjoy every minute of it. And I'm sure he is too now. And that's why he's flourishing. Wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. Um, uh, Division three schools have amazing media departments. Um, you know, they have, uh, social media, you know, they put these kids, they make stars out of them, just like the D one schools. And there is this stigma, especially if you're at a club where, you know, kids are going pro and, you know, playing number one for SC and, and it's easy to go, Oh, so you're playing college tennis. Oh, division three. Well, you know, good for you, you know, or whatever. And it, it's like, oh, well, you just weren't good enough to, uh, you know, make it to the big schools. But a lot of times these kids, uh, you know, going back to the UTR thing, if you're a, a, an 11 or a 12 UTR, you may get on a D1 squad. But every year there's another batch of 13s and 14s that are coming in. Mm-hmm. They're not going to stand pat and say, okay, you know, Jimmy, we're going to work with you and, and build your game and have you, you know, start eventually. No, they're going to push you aside if the, if the Thompson kid decides to go to your school. Right. And so you could be at a great school and have a really cool warm up, but you're not seeing the court or, you know, if you're an 11 or a 12 and you go to one of these small schools, you're the star. You're playing number one. Right. The guys are loving you. You're playing every week. Um, you know, you you're you have a chance of being an All-American, um, you know, the, and let's not forget that if you're an 11 or a 12, the tour is probably not in your future. And those of us that know guys that have gone on the on the tour um, at those lower levels, that's brutal. 
Yeah, it's uh, tough. <laughs> and, yeah. And so then it becomes the, the education. It becomes the culture that you're having. I remember Sean's freshman year, I'm watching him play and there's some guy, you know, standing next to me cheering, going, hey, let's go, Sean. And I'm like, hi, you know, strange man rooting for my kid. You know, I'm, I'm Sean's dad. And he's like, oh, he's in my econ class. I'm his econ professor and I play a little tennis. So I thought I'd come out and watch him play. Oh, that's neat. You know, so they have this great culture. And so he's also getting an amazing education. And, you know, the coaches are all about grades. Um, uh, he gets a grade report every month or so, making sure the kids are, uh, you know, because the kids got to stay eligible. Yeah. And, uh, and so the emphasis on that, and they say, look, if you have to miss practice, cause you got a paper due miss practice because, you know, we need you on Saturday and Sunday. And that's the other thing is that most of the matches in division three are on the weekends. Um, so you're not gone for, you know, two weeks, uh, missing a lot of school. Right. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that my buddy, uh, my buddy, Charlie, he has been, he's been on the podcast a little earlier and, and, uh, and last year, I believe. And that's what he always talked about. What he appreciated about that experience in division three was that balance between school and tennis. And he always took his tennis seriously growing up. I mean, he was a great junior player, but he also always took his studies very seriously. And he's gone on to get a master's in international relations. And he started this incredible nonprofit organization down on the Mexican border to help, you know, provide tennis to underprivileged kids and unite kids and promote the border, uh, border relations and, and all that stuff down there. And all the, all of this stuff that he has been able to do, you know, he had, he attributes to being able to devote enough of his energy to his studies in school. And that's something that was always important to him. And had he gone, you know, he was looking at going and playing at Cal, which Cal is obviously an amazing school, but he says, Hey, you know what, if I went and played that D one, you know, level and, I wasn't able to devote as much of myself to my studies and get as much out of my education as I did, then I don't know if any of this was even possible, you know, and had he gone to Cal, it probably would have been like you mentioned. I mean, he's a great player, but he's on the team with 10 other, you know, great players. And maybe he gets buried down in the lineup and, you know, never gets to be a, you know, an NCAA all American and never gets to compete for a national title. And all those experiences were because he found the right fit for, for him. And so I think there's something really, really powerful there. And uh, that's right. And his parents, isn't that what we're after? Right. I, I, I hit with this girl, um, who played number one for PV high school and she was just an amazing tennis player and so competitive. And she went up and got into a great school up in Northern California. And, um, I knew she was just going to be an amazing college tennis player. She played one year. Wow. And and I'm like, so what what's going on? And she's like, well, there's an internship I want to have. You know, I've got these other goals. And so that is a huge junior tennis success story because she used her tennis to get into uh, maybe an even better school than she could have gotten into. And then she used those contacts to go and further her career. And she ended up graduating a year early. And uh, because all the drive and that work ethic that she learned through tennis, she is now, you know, 
working through her educational and personal life. And you know, she's going to go and be a world beater in whatever industry she decides to go into. And that's what we all want. That's the point of all of this. And that's why we need to cut that crazy tennis parent some slack. And if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're like, I'm identifying with some of these things, know that you're on the right track. You are doing the right thing by motivating your kid and getting him into lessons and doing all of these things. There's no training program. Um, you know, we were talking at the club that, you know, you can throw a, a tennis ball a mile, you know, within a mile of the Kramer club and hit a thousand coaches with all different philosophies of how to teach your kid a forehand. And these kids go every week, sometimes five times a week and practice forehands and backhands. But there's not a program where the parents can go and say, okay, today we're going to work on staying silent on the drive home after a horrendous match. So let's role play and, you know, let's, let's work on this and, um, you know, have the dad, you know, flame out and, you know, the coach is like, okay, that wasn't what we were looking for. Let's try it again. Um, you know, so, uh, we're out here just winging it. And so if the whole idea is, I want my kid to be successful. I want him or her to have fun and just, uh, you know, just love the daylights out of them. Uh, then let's let the coaches coach and let's be that person that catches the kid after the match and, and be like, Hey, you know, I thought you played great. And, you know, we got another match next weekend. Who cares about this? Let's go to your favorite restaurant for lunch. And then maybe have a sideline conversation with the coach and say, yeah, you know, we just, he played La Habra and, you know, he was missing backhands and it was bugging the crap out of me. And he was, he wasn't watching the ball as far as he played a bunch of out balls and let the coach work that into the lessons. You know, coaches are really good at that. And, uh, and so if I had that one piece of advice that I've learned is, you know, just kind of back up. I remember, you know, listening to a mom talk to one of the pros saying, you know, why isn't Janice on the top court? You know, she beat Sally twice last week and Sally's on the top court. Yeah. You know, I'm making up these names. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's a mom of a Janice out there somewhere going, wait a minute. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, but the kid was standing right there. Yeah. And so the pro is in a tough spot and all of a sudden doesn't that signal to the kid that this is really important and all, you know, it's a Tuesday night and she's just there to play with her friends and have fun. And now all of a sudden when she is on court two instead of court one, she's feeling like it's a failure. Well, that just took the fun out yeah. of it. Yeah. That's yeah, I totally agree and experience that often as, as a coach. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, on, for so many different reasons, that's, that's important to consider. I mean, like you said, uh, it programs in the kid that being on that lower court is a failure when uh, in actuality, number one, they're out there to have fun. Priority number one, number two, like we mentioned at the top, you got to learn to how to play everybody. Yeah. You know, you got to learn how to beat those players that you think you're better than. You got to learn how to deal with that pressure. Um, and, and also too, that the, you know, the, the coaches are watching everything. They're watching not only the results, but the attitude and the effort and how they're treating the other players and, and all that stuff. So I think that's, um, 
that's 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 very very true. I had one more question for you that I that I wanted to get to. I was thinking about our conversation, and I and I really wanted to to get to this get to this question. You know, you had so much passion for the game, and you were you know you had all these lessons that you were trying to teach Sean, and you know. You've maybe in retrospect, you were overstepping and maybe p- putting too much. But now, you know, you step back. Sean has taken to the game and, and sounds like he's loving the game and really flourishing uh, in college. Do you feel like all of those things that you talked to him about then, maybe it just took time to sink in and now he's reaping the benefits? 100%. So how would you do it? How... So then looking back, then how would you do it differently? Because I assume you would want to do it differently, but yet you'd still want to convey the same lesson. Yes. And I, I think I did this a little bit, but I would really focus on using positive examples and, you know, pointing out uh, scenarios or kids. And we do this now. I use a lot of current events to kind of teach Sean about, um, you know, privilege or, uh, budgeting or things like that, that we see, um, in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, pointing and saying, you know, gosh, I really liked how, you know, that kid, uh, you know, got cheated and ended up losing, but, you know, he held his, head high and he shook that kid's hand and said, nice match. And he's just, uh, you know, saying next or whatever. So I guess I would not talk to him about his game, but I would talk about other game, other players and the positive things that I'm seeing. I really appreciate how, you know, that one kid really works super hard or, um, and, you know, hits buckets of serves, you know, because you can see that it's really helped his, his serve. And, you know, he was struggling that, that kid couldn't get a, a serve in to save his life. And, you know, he really worked on it with uh, his coach and, and now look, you know, so I guess I would, I'd probably try to make it less personal to Sean and more general. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think as I was thinking about this, what, what was jumping out to me was that that love and the passion for the game that you had, um, and the work ethic and the competitiveness and all that stuff, it's now showing. So those lessons got passed on. Um, but it maybe just took some time to sink in, you know what I mean? And, and, and at the time, you know, Sean was kind of rejecting it and it was, you know, it was a lot of pressure for him, but there were actually some positives there. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. It's like, well, we, if you still wanted to pass all that on, because if he has that love and the passion for the game for the rest of his life, you know, I mean, that's, that's amazing. And all the, one of the things we all love about tennis is, you know, the lessons you learn on a tennis court help you be much further beyond the tennis court they help you in life and so you know a lot of those lessons that you've been passing on his whole childhood seem to be sinking in now yes and if you're a tennis playing parent and uh you know i compete with sean in father-son tournaments there is a time when the roles reverse 
<laughs> and I hope that everybody gets an opportunity to experience that where now it's my son that's coming to me saying, Hey, you know, let's just get a ball in play here. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't play good when you're mad dad. So, you know, just calm down a little bit, you know, and you're going, Sean, I don't want to hear it from no, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That guy's a jerk. You know, whatever. Um, but, and so, you know, he's helping me with my game. And, you know, we're playing a lot of I formation now. And, um, you know, I never used to do that, you know, when I was playing doubles tournaments. And he's like, okay, now look, you know, just move to your left or, you know, I'm going to kick it out wide and, you know, these types of things. And so that's just gold. Yeah. That is, uh, you know, some of my funnest memories now are just competing with him and we're not a world beating team you know we're more of an effort team uh, <laughs> especially because you know the dads and a lot of these father-son things are former pros or whatever and you know so i he has to kind of carry me so we know going in that we've got a tough task um but just that having the roles reverse and him teaching me now um is just a blessing yeah that's neat. That's awesome. Well, it's been really cool to see, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't at the club early enough to, to get to see Sean develop as a junior player, but it's been really neat getting to know you and him and, and seeing your relationship now and how, how healthy that seems to be and how much you guys are enjoying the game together. I think that's, uh, that's, that's really, really cool. Would you mind if I finished with a couple kind of rapid fire questions that I sure. like to ask everybody? Sure. All right, cool. I, I was curious to get your, uh, your answer. So first off for all the gear nerds out there, what's your, um, what's your racket and string setup? I play? play with the Wilson ultra 100. Mm -hmm. Um, I may, I just recently made a switch from the pro model to the 100 model to try to get a little bit more pace. Um, and then I use RPM blast 17 gauge, which I just absolutely love. Okay. And what tension do you normally string it at? I tension, the tension is, uh, like 51 in the summer and 48, something like that in the, in the frigid California winters. <laughs> it gets cold up, the, up at the club when the wind starts picking up and <laughs> that's right. Um, cool. Do you have a favorite tennis book? Well, um, winning ugly. Yeah. I think is, is one of my favorites. And, and then, you know, obviously, uh, first in the field of two, I think is a really important right. book, uh, just because it's so raw. I mean, it's, it's a tough book. Um, <laughs> but it, it really, I think that book helped me a lot. So I guess I'd, I'd have to say those two. Cool. Um, when you're under pressure in a match, uh, you know, close match, third set, what do you like to tell yourself in those moments? Um, to breathe. Um, I try to really focus on my feet. Um, you know, because I feel like footwork wins matches. I've always kind of had that feeling, um, that if you've kind of set up behind the ball correctly, that, um, the rest of your stroke will kind of take over. Um, so I guess it's those things. Breathing and footwork. I like it. Okay. Last one. Um, this, this, this question's I think especially pertinent now, but if you were coaching your younger tennis self, which, uh, let's put you like right when you started picking the game back up as an adult and when you really started taking it seriously again, 
um, you know, I know you were doing a lot of, a lot of things right in terms of, you know, getting the coaching and really sticking with that, sticking with whatever you were working on and, um, you know, finding all different kinds of practice partners, but what would you tell your younger, uh, that, that younger tennis self, if you were coaching yourself, take care of your body. Um, okay. you're going to, you're going to play this game for the rest of your life. And, um, you have to work on stretching and yoga and doing all of those things that help repair. Cause every time you go out on the tennis court, you're doing damage. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, my, my, I've got a right hip thing. Uh, my toes are bad. Um, so I'm not done. I want to continue. My son's going to be home in a couple of weeks and we've got a summer of tournaments planned and I want to be there. I want to be on the court. And so I guess I would, I would tell myself, keep doing everything you're doing and work hard, but put in work on repairing your body and taking care of your body. That's awesome. That's great. Well, Wade, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you doing this. And, uh, and thank you very much for, for sharing all of this stuff. I know there's a lot of personal experiences in there. And uh, I think people getting to hear this and, uh, and, and kind of learning from, from you and your experiences, I think it's really valuable. So I really appreciate you sharing all this stuff. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and I'm a, a loyal listener of your podcast. And, <laughs> well, I appreciate um, that. So I'm, I was happy to do it. Cool. All right, Wade. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll see you at the club pretty soon. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Great conversation there with Wade Murphy. Tons of good information for parents as well as junior players and coaches. Uh, I think we can all apply some of that insight for ourselves in one way or another. I especially loved how he talked about when he kind of recommitted himself to the game as an adult, how he took that on with just fully committing to the coaching and committing to what he was working on, being willing to play everybody, no matter what level of player or age of player. I think that's something that everybody can apply. Um, that's a really, really healthy attitude to have. Uh, thank you listeners for tuning in to this episode and all of my episodes uh, without your listens and support, I would not be doing this. Um, this is a great time, if you haven't already, to go back and listen to some older podcasts. We've had so many incredible guests on uh, recently. The legendary coach, Greg Patton, um, ATP pros, Sam Query, Marcos Giron, and Jason Jung, and some exceptional coaches like Peter Lucasen, Luke and Clancy Shields, and Kathy Rinaldi, just to name a few. There's been so many um, I can't I can't name all of them right now, but uh, I've really gotten so much out of each and every podcast I did. Um, my interview with Joel Drucker, the journalist, was really really cool. I had so much fun with that. Um, so some of my most popular episodes out there have been uh, how to get the most out of your warm up with the Washington associate head coach Chris Russell. Um, my gear podcast with Troy Lara and Chris Edwards of Tennis Warehouse have done great. And also the uh, the singles and doubles strategy podcast that I've done with Kurt Wheeler. You guys have all really liked those. So if you haven't already, go back, check those out, check out all the others. Um, how to play every doubles position on the court with Kip Brady was a great one. Uh, I, really, every single one I've, I've truly, truly enjoyed. And I think you will too. Also, follow me on Instagram at AndyGerst10S. Uh, that'll be the best way to stay up to date on what I'm doing. 
And uh, if I've got anything else coming out in the future, also please don't hesitate to reach out and ask me questions if you have them. Uh, I would I will be happy to to answer those if if I can get to them. That's all I got for you. Uh, take care. Goodbye for now. Thank you everyone out there for all the support uh, throughout this this journey with the podcast. Hope you guys all have a great spring and summer tennis season and hope to talk to you all soon.